Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today it is a solo show. I am by myself in the podcast studio. I haven't done this in a while, and uh, I can't say I'm excited. I'm excited to be talking to you guys. I'm excited to deliver some content, but it is always more enjoyable when Travis here. It is just fun. We've been having a lot of fun with the podcast lately, and uh, we've been really opening up our minds to the idea of just like casual talk. So we've been kind of diving into random topics at the beginning, and it's been a blast. Uh, but I will say too, he's probably having more fun. He is on vacation right now. He is in Hawaii, and uh, the day he left, we got dumped on with snow. It's very ironic. It's like he's going off to paradise, and uh, I'm getting snowed in, which has been beautiful over here. And my daughter and Bubba, the bulldog, are absolutely loving it. Um, I just realized I didn't even post a picture of this. I'm going to post a picture of it. Uh, we made a snowman, and uh, I, I stand corrected. Shannon made a snowman. Shannon made a really good snowman. Uh, we didn't participate in it. We just played and hung out in the snow. <laughs> but uh, but we did throw a tailored hat on it. <laughs> so we had a snowman with a tailored coaching method hat in the uh, in the yard. It was pretty dope. Um, today, though, today's going to be a Q&A. Uh, a couple quick announcements, and then we're going to dive into a Q&A. The first question is going to be on uh, training to failure and uh, RIR. And uh, I'm going to take that one pretty far because I just created some really cool content and I think it would be super helpful for me to just dive into that subject at first. Um, But before I do, it is Monday. If you are listening to this the day it dropped, if not, you are listening to this after Monday. But as I'm recording this, it is Friday, which means that we are two days away as I'm recording this from the Tailored Apparel launch. So uh, by the time you hear this, there could be stuff left. I don't know. So go ahead and check out tailoredlifeapparel.co. Um, the link to our site will be in the description of this podcast. Um, however, regardless, I highly encourage you to go listen to the last podcast we did. So last week it aired on Thursday. That was kind of the origin story behind the apparel company. I want you to check it out and listen to it. Um, I also want you to go check out the website because there is a page about us, who we are. Um, you can kind of browse. You should still be able to see the, uh, the drop, even if it's sold out because we'll keep it up there as just like a way for people to preview. Um, but I'm pretty excited. This has been a nerve wracking time for me, and I'm, but I'm excited for this to go out. This is something I've been thinking about since I was a kid. Um, I mean, I'm talking in high school, I was really into skateboarding, music, and apparel. And apparel was mainly like streetwear. So I was really into that. And that was my plan. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna create a, like a street and music influenced apparel company that, you know, skateboarders and people who listen to hip hop, but also are punk rockers and um, entrepreneurs and hustlers and all these people, they can wear it and they can represent it. And like, I was like really into this. Um, and I had big dreams with it, but it didn't really go very far because I didn't know shit about business. <laughs> and, uh, and I even tried to start a company once I started thinking I knew a little bit about business and, and we failed miserably, me and a couple of people that we tried to do it with. Um, two people that I'm actually still really good friends with. We just knew that it wasn't the right time and we bagged it. And so I'm excited to come back into it. And, and I hope as you're listening to this, I hope that you placed an order yesterday. If you're listening to this as this aired, I highly encourage you to go check out the website now because it just aired last night. So we go live. We went live as you're listening to this Sunday, uh, the 4th at 4 p.m. People on the list got access at 8 a.m., which means if you missed it, if things are sold out by the time you're listening to this, anything like that, um, I'm sorry to say that we aren't going to launch those again. There is uh, going to be a round two, a new launch, obviously. We don't know the exact date. I'm still sampling some materials and stuff, but um, every time we do a drop, it's going to be 
uh, limited and exclusive. And that's the whole point. We really want this to be a very, very unique um, and exclusive, limited um, and very creative type of clothing brand, kind of like this underground feel. So um, we're excited to be a, a very involved in the culture, in the community, in the process of everything. And we want to make sure that it's extremely limited so that um, you feel like you're wearing something exclusive and limited because it is, you know. So um, I'm very, very excited about it. But uh, nonetheless, if you did miss out on this first drop, I still encourage you to go there and sign up for the email list. Um, we are not going to be spamming you. We are not going to be sending you shit. We're not going to be like writing email marketing or anything like that right now. It's just like, literally it's just being on the list so that next time the launch is coming up, you're going to get notified about that date before anybody else. And then when the date comes, you're going to get early access. So like I said, people who are on that list, instead of having to wait till 4 PM when it goes live and um, public on Instagram and so on and so forth, they get access at 8 a.m. So they'll get an email bright and early in the morning, eight hours ahead of everybody else, and they get a chance to jump on it and grab their gear before anybody else gets the chance to. So it's a really cool opportunity to just be more tight-knit, involved in the community, and we're going to be sharing a lot more. The Tarot Life Apparel is going to grow to be something that gives a lot back to people in need, and we're very, very excited about that because we're well-connected to different organizations because Tarot Coaching Method has always been big on donating in, in charitable events. Um, we don't share a lot of it because uh, that's not why we do it. Um, and then Andreas as well is extremely, his, all of his businesses have an element of charity and donations and giving back involved in them. Um, I mean, one of his businesses is that he owns, uh, an orphanage, um, and it's massive. So, uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, just want to bring that up cause I'm excited about it. Uh, something very, very cool. Um, the gear is just so fucking dope and it's only going to get better. That's the cool thing is we're just going to keep making improvements as we see people share it. So if you did get anything, uh, it'll be as you're listening to this, hopefully if you stay up to date with the podcast and you're listening to it as this airs, make sure that you, you tag us. So share what you get when it comes in the mail, tag us on Instagram. When you open the package, when you're rocking it, when you're taking selfies with it, when you're in the gym with it, when you're wearing it on Sunday, lounging around, whatever it may be, we want to see it and we want to share it on our profile. We want to thank you for being a part of this culture in this group. Um, and if you're not following at Taylor Life Apparel on Instagram, go do that right now. Okay. That's enough of that. Uh, but I wanted to bring that up real quick, given that this is the Tailored Life podcast. Now we are going to dive into the questions. Let me pull these up. Um, man, it is a luxury having a podcast producer next to you. I haven't done this in a while. Uh, and I hear other, there's podcasts I listen to, you know, where I'm like, uh, and they're like pulling up questions. I can hear their fucking computer. They're pulling up questions while they do it. And I still love the podcast, but now I'm like, oh yeah, well, look at that. That's me. All right. So we're going to pull this up. So the question is from, I don't know if it's K Ramsey or it's Cramsey. Uh, it's on Instagram. So uh, apologies if I butchered that. Now I know how Travis feels. Um, I feel like a spoiled podcaster right now. The question is, thoughts on taking sets to failure versus leaving one, two, or three reps in the tank. So I have some general thoughts on this, and then I also want to teach you guys how to tell if you are training hard enough, like basically how to test yourself. Like how do you go about testing yourself to see if you're training hard enough, and if you are training hard enough, how do you determine if you're training hard enough but not too hard, right? Like I want to teach you guys the importance of this, and then obviously how to go about gauging your intensity. So first and foremost, like my general thoughts on taking sets to failure before I get into uh, like how to test how to do this is pretty simple. 
my thoughts are that there's a time and place for it. I think that in general, if I was to answer this in a very generic or general sense, I would say that taking sets to failure is more important for hypertrophy than it is for strength. The reason for that is because the risk versus reward. So if we consider the toll that um, taking a set to failure could have on you when training for hypertrophy versus training for strength or performance, um, it's a much bigger toll on you globally speaking when it's strength-based. And the reason I believe that is because if I'm taking a set to failure and my goal is strength, then I'm probably lifting with something equivalent to a barbell. I'm probably lifting heavier weights and I'm probably doing it for like, let's say one to five reps. If I'm training for hypertrophy, I might be using a barbell, but I could very well also be using a dumbbell or a cable or a machine, which I'll get to how to determine what's better and here in a sec. And when training for those, I'm probably training training with a lighter weight and for higher reps. So number one, if we're training for, for strength with lower reps and heavier weight, right off the bat, we know that we are increasing the risk of injury because the weight is heavier. Therefore, we are more likely to have joint stress placed on our body. Um, we're more likely to tear something. We're more likely to have some kind of traumatic injury happen. It's just, I mean, it's even been researched. Like um, the injury risk of a powerlifter is, is greater than almost any sport um, and the likelihood of it is. Now, some of those injuries are very mild. Some of those are very harsh. So like, you know, using that as a, a just a general statement is hard to do, you know, because at the end of the day, yeah, you could be extremely likely to get injured, but if getting injured means like you sprained your ankle, big fucking deal, right? But if you tear a bicep or a pec, which happens about it too, that's a pretty big deal. So we have to, you know, understand that it's not always terrible. However, injuries with bodybuilding are significantly lower. And the reason for that is because one, the load is much lighter. Two, a lot of times we're not using lifts that require so much skill or proficiency. So if we're doing a deadlift or a barbell squat or even Olympic lifting would be even greater skill, right? Clean, snatch, things like that, jerk. Those are extremely skill demanding exercises, which means the injury risk goes higher because we're doing more complex movements with this heavy load. Whereas bodybuilding is, I mean, it doesn't matter if you do a bench press or a dumbbell bench press or, or a, a chest press on a machine, like you just need to press and you need to fire your chest. The other th reason is because if I'm doing one to five reps, that is less total time to become aware that an injury is coming because I could lift one rep, feel great, lift two reps, feel great, lift third rep, boom, I injure myself. Whereas bodybuilding, I might be doing eight, 10, 12, 15, even 20 reps. That's a long time. And I'm probably going to be able to become aware and notice or predict an injury coming soon and stop the set early. You have more time to stop the set before injury than you do when you're training for strength, basically, right? So we know that the the, the injury risk is higher. So that's one reason why taking sets to failure is, is more beneficial from a hypertrophy perspective, just because you can get away with it more. But the other reason is because research actually generally shows that you need to do it. Part of muscle growth is, it's debated if muscle damage equals growth or if muscle damage is a process that happens during growth pathways. Because, you know, people argue, there's a lot of people that argue like you don't need, like you can literally see it in studies, you don't need muscle damage in order to grow. And I would agree with that. There's some people that, that argue that you do, uh, you don't need it, but you should. And I would agree with that too. And I think the best place is kind of right in the middle and saying that, hey, like all the things that we know that for sure cause muscle growth generally cause muscle damage as well. So instead of us arguing about not needing it and trying to avoid muscle damage to say like, haha, I accomplished muscle growth without damage. Why don't we just push ourselves with all the things that we need to do? And if we get muscle damage in the process, 
It's just part of the course. In fact, I believe it's probably one of the indicators that you're doing enough of those right things to actually stimulate growth. Um, it's the same reason if you think about like a newbie uh, is way more likely to get sore, way more often and way more easily, but they're also way more likely to grow and build muscle and at a rapid rate. The more advanced you get, the less muscle you can build and the slower those gains come. So if that's the case, then we ultimately know for a fact that building muscle is correlated with muscle damage. And then the, the more advanced you get, the less likely you are to get muscle damage because you're more experienced, you're more skilled at lifting, but it's also because you're not building as much muscle because you're more advanced. So it's, to me, it's a proxy, right? If you are creating enough mechanical tension, which is one of the key drivers of growth, you're probably gonna get some muscle damage. You're gonna be sore. If you were doing enough volume to build, which you need to do in order to grow, you're probably gonna get some muscle damage. If you are creating enough metabolic stress on the muscle or lactate accumulation or metabolite accumulation or anything like that, you're probably going to have some muscle damage, right? So there's, it's just, I mean, to me, that's just what it is, right? Um, the other thing is that, in, in part of, and the reason that's important to know is because when you go to failure, you are definitely going to cause some muscle damage because that's going to break down the tissue. Um, and because we know muscle damage is more associated with hypertrophy, it's probably more important to go to failure with hypertrophy. Um, the other thing is that hypertrophy is less skill focused, which means the frequency doesn't need to be as high. So you can do more volume in a single session and, and isolate a muscle harder and cause more damage, more volume, and experience that soreness and muscle damage. And it's not a detriment because you don't have to do it more than twice a week, right? Like the optimal uh, frequency for muscle growth is probably two, maybe three times a week. But most research shows that twice a week is better because you can divvy up volume easier, but there's no benefit to going three, four, five, six days a week, especially on most muscle groups, maybe small muscle groups that can't handle a lot of volume in a single session, but recover quickly across the week. It might make sense to do three sessions to specialize in them. But realistically, research shows that if volume's actually equated, you could train a muscle once a week and get the same amount of benefits. Now, in the real world, that's very unlikely because in order to do enough volume to see real muscle growth, you're probably not gonna be able to do enough in a single session because you're gonna be fatigued before you can reach your peak. So if you split it into two sessions, you can lift heavier, do more volume week to week, and then you grow more. So it's still, even though research says like if you equate volume, it's the same, it's still not gonna be the same in real world because two times a week is gonna be superior from being able to reach that volume perspective. It's the same thing with calories, right? You can eat where the fuck you want, and if your calories are good, you're gonna lose weight, but it's way easier to adhere to a low-calorie diet to lose weight when you're eating real food and whole foods and clean foods, plain and simple. Doesn't mean you can't, but it's easier, so it's more practical. Um, now, with strength, it's a more skill-focused thing. It's a very neurologically taxing and neurologically demanding component or style of training, modality, right? And because of that, it's, you know, you, if you want to get really good at baseball or throwing a baseball or learning Spanish or anything like that, you don't practice once a week, once every couple of weeks, you do it every day if you can, but as many times per week as you can to get proficient at the skill itself. Cause it's a neurological capability. And therefore for strength, if like you're going to improve your bench strength, squat strength, snatch strength, you're going to want to train it more than twice a week because you want to get proficient at it. A lot of those sessions are going to be light, but you need to focus on the skill and the bar path and in the process of going through those movement patterns. Um, and because of that, we don't want to go too close to failure because the closer to failure we go, the higher the muscle damage, the less likely we can train that movement and training frequency being higher is very important for strength, right? Um, and research literally shows this, is the last point I'll make with, you know, 
the difference between training to failure for strength versus hypertrophy. Um, most research supports the idea that, you know, with strength, you can leave two, three, even four reps in the tank in some research, which is very hard for me to believe. But for strength purposes, you can leave four reps in the tank, two, three, four reps in the tank, and you will still get just as strong as you would if you were going max effort. Now, I do believe research supports one rep left in the tank is going to lead to more short-term strength than leaving three or four in the tank. However, the systemic fatigue, so the amount of neurological and physical fatigue that you experience when leaving just one rep away, going one rep shy of failure, so just doing an RIR one on a heavy lift for strength, that, that's so taxing on the body that the recovery demand is greater and therefore you won't be able to train that movement or, or lift again as soon. And therefore, although you might build more strength in that single session, after weeks of training, you won't build as much strength as leaving two, three or four reps in the tank because you can't be as proficient and uh, keep your frequency as high due to going too hard all the time, right? Um, and it's the same thing with one rep max, actually. Going to like your absolute failure with strength actually just expresses your current strength level. It doesn't necessarily build a new strength. So a lot of like really good powerlifter uh, coaches will talk about this all the time. It's like, if you leave a couple in the tank, you're actually getting stronger, right? If you train at 80%, 85%, 90%, you're getting stronger. You're improving strength. If you're training at 95 100%, you're just expressing that strength. Save that for the meet day, right? The competition. Um, so because of that and, you know, the fact that it's pretty simple, right? We need to create volume. We need to create maximal tension on the muscle and we need to actually fatigue uh, the muscle itself and exhaust the muscle fibers. That's going to require going to failure or closer to failure more often. And then with strength, we just don't need to nearly as much simply because um, it, it's a neurological thing and the, the injury risk is much higher. The recovery demand is much higher neurologically speaking. So, my general thoughts on, on taking sets to failure is that if you are training specifically for strength, especially with compound lifts, you should always leave two or three reps in the tank until you're ready to express that strength and test your level of strength and see how heavy you can go, which I do think is important to do every once in a while. If you are training for hypertrophy, I think you should be leaving one or two in the tank on your uh, more injury-prone lifts leg press, back squat, bench press, stuff like that, or even like just neurologically taxing ones. So bent row, even RDL, like those are heavy lifts. You're going to be more taxed from them. And you should be going zero reps away to like take it to failure or just leave one rep in the tank for things like lateral raise, curls, chest flies, stuff like that. Um, and then for strength, if you are training accessories for strength development, so you're doing dips or dumbbell press or heavy rows, and it's not necessarily to build muscle, uh, maybe you want the secondary goal of building muscle, but the primary reason you're doing them is to build up your big lifts for like powerlifting purposes, for example, you're probably going to want to leave one or two in the tank. I still don't see much value in going to complete failure because the recovery demand just so high that you're going to have to deload more frequently or lower your frequency week after week um, throughout the week. And those two things are going to stop you from making more progress long-term. Whereas taking uh, sets to failure for hypertrophy intentionally to fatigue yourself that much is actually smarter because you don't need as high a frequency. And there's research to support pushing yourself to that maximum threshold and then actually taking time off. So literally not even stepping in the gym for a couple of weeks or just taking a really strong deload, like a really like big deload, taking a lot of time off or just like lowering your volume, I mean, a lot off. Uh, those things kind of lead to a super compensation. So they have research that shows you're actually better off training hard for three months and then taking a couple weeks off, which is crazy. But like, it does improve. Whereas strength, it's not the same because you need that neurological efficiency. So now, that's my thoughts on it. And that kind of breaks down the importance of it, right? We, even if we're not supposed to go to failure, it's important to understand and be able to test yourself 
on failure because if you don't know where failure is, what failure feels like, how to take it there, how are you supposed to keep two or three or even four reps away from failure if it's an activation or a strength-based movement? Or how are you supposed to push it hard enough to grow? We see this all the time, right? It's why it's one of the biggest mistakes that we see. People are training week after week after week, and they're just frustrated that they're not seeing results. But the reason they're not seeing results is because they're just not pushing it enough, right? And so I have three things that I typically do um, to help kind of uh, fix this issue, right? And by fix this issue, I mean like you can use these things as a way to test yourself. Uh, There's actually four things, but three main things. And then one I'll just throw out there that's an obvious one. But um, that fix this issue so that you can start training hard enough, but not too hard because you got to have this balancing act. And and a part of that is understanding the RIR scale, right? Reps and reserve. Um, So zero being you have no lefts in the tank. One being really hard, but you have one rep in the tank. Two being hard, you have two reps in the tank, three, three reps in the tank, four, four reps in the tank, five, five reps in the tank. So pretty simple. Reps in reserve. When you finish set, how many reps in reserve do you have? How many reps left in the tank? Um, and the only way you can really use this scale is if you properly go to each one of those numbers. But you really can't even judge a number five or a four if you haven't taken it to zero, right? And that's my big point. So the first one is an obvious one, train to failure. Um, and do this safely. And, and this one is just obvious because if you don't train to failure, how do you know what failure feels like? If you don't know what failure feels like, how are you supposed to predict how far away you are from it. Simple, right? Um, I don't recommend doing this on a one rep max necessarily because I think the injury risk is higher. Um, However, if you're interested in strength, it might be useful to do that as well as like a three rep max. Um, But I do think it's important for everybody to do a moderately low, so maybe a three or a five rep max, as well as like something like a 10 rep max and maybe even a 15 or 20 rep max because they're all completely different feelings. And for certain people, they are more capable of taking it to uh, failure in the lower reps or the higher reps. And it's, it's mainly predicted on Neurologically speaking, what you're used to, so what you have consistently trained over time is probably what you're gonna, your body and your, your capabilities are going to favor towards, but then also your muscle fiber dominance. If you're primarily fast twitch fibers, you're probably going to be more easily able to go to failure um, on a one, two, three rep max versus a 15 or 20 rep max. So it's important to do them all, not to see which one you're best at, um, because how, how do you really know? If you do them all, you just do them all. You might think one is more. I mean, no matter who you are, going to 15 or 20 reps failure is always the worst. It sucks. <laughs> going to one rep max is, is like it, the time duration of it happening to you is just very short. And it's cool to lift heavy weights. Going to 20 just fucking sucks. And your legs burn, your chest burns, whatever you're doing. Uh, but point being is you should go to failure and you should feel what that feels like in multiple rep ranges. Um, the second thing is that you're to know you're, that you're actually doing this properly, like your last rep needs to be clearly harder than your first, right? So if we're testing ourselves or we're looking for predictors of, are we training hard enough basically is what we're getting at here, right? So these aren't all just tests for going to failure, but more or less tests that you can use or things that you can read into to see if you're training hard enough and then start using the RIR scale to make sure that you begin training hard enough once you gather the knowledge and awareness from what I'm talking about here. And the first thing after uh, failure, like actually going to failure, is just making sure that your last rep is clearly harder than the first rep. Um, Because if if your last rep isn't like obviously more difficult and harder than the first rep you did, then you're definitely not training hard enough because you should accumulate fatigue with each and every set that you do. And that should impact your final set. Um, Because if I'm, for example, doing 200 reps or 200 pounds for eight reps, uh, never do 200 reps, 200 pounds for eight reps on set one, two, three, and four, and my bar speed stayed the same, 
my level of fatigue stayed the same. My metabolic or cardiovascular, like aerobic fatigue stayed the same. I'm not training hard enough. I'm not progressing enough because I sh- I'm going to be way more fresh on that first set. So it should be easier, which means my last set should be more taxing metabolically, physically, neurologically. And therefore you need to increase load as you go. Right. Um, and this is also something you can intentionally do to ensure you're training hard enough because you can progress load with every set, or you can add a rep as the sets go on. Uh, because doing either one of those things might take you from going from a, uh, an RIR of three to two to one or to zero over the course of four sets, right? Um, or we do a rep range. So maybe I put 200 pounds on the bar and I'm doing eight to 10 reps. In set one, I do eight because I want to leave three in the tank. Set two, maybe I do nine because I'm leaving two in the tank. Set three, maybe I do nine again because I'm only leaving one in the tank, but I just did nine and it's hard. And then set four, I go to failure. I go to zero. So maybe I do 11 reps. Who knows? It's fine. You should be doing that because if we know that your distance to failure and your level of effort and intensiveness is actually the most important uh, precursor for building muscle or strength, then we want to follow the RIR programmed, which is going to be something like a, a for four sets might be four, three, two, one, or three, two, one, zero on the four sets for hypertrophy on a safe lift. For strength, it might be four, three, two, two. So I might actually have to lighten the load on the last one if that really fatigued me. Or I keep it and I stay within that range. But I'd rather somebody skew their rep range a little bit, which we'll get into in a sec, in order to stick to that RAR because that is more important, right? You're, you, there, nine reps isn't better than eight for growth. And three reps isn't better than two for strength. They're both equally great. It's how hard you are pushing it in that set of two or three or eight or nine that ultimately leads to the best result. So point being is as your sets progress, they should be getting harder, plain and simple. The second thing, uh, I guess third thing if you count the failure, uh, film yourself and judge your RIR or your RPE on camera and then do it again off camera. So the way this looks is pretty simple. Just film your set and right after you rack the weight, look at the camera and tell the camera what your RIR was, how many reps in reserve you thought you had. Then watch it after you stop breathing hard and calm down and then judge it again to see if you were accurate, right? Because now you have no load on your back or, or the bar or anything. You've calmed down. You're sitting down. You're going to rewatch the video. And now you're judging that same RIR and you can be honest with yourself. 90% of the time, this helps my clients a ton to see for themselves that they definitely had more reps in the tank uh, compared to what they believed while doing it and actually saying it to the camera. In fact, the reason I started using this as a strategy with my clients is because I did it. And I didn't intentionally do it. I was doing a three-rep max on squat, finished my third rep, looked at the camera and was like, that was definitely an RIR zero. I am toast. I watched it and I was like, my last rep, my back stayed neutral. I didn't round. Uh, I didn't slow down. Like the cadence, the tempo of the squat was perfect. It was actually kind of fast on the way up, which is good. I was being explosive. I was staying very tall. It was good form. What the fuck am I talking about? I easily had at least two in the tank, not zero. Right. But mentally, it felt heavy on my back. I was only going for three reps. Like it's the mindset will stop. The mind will stop you from lifting further more than your muscles actually will. But the only way to know this is to actually film yourself and then judge it off camera. So judge it on and off camera. And that'll be a really good indicator to show you, you know, what you're actually predicting is true or not. And then the last thing is, uh, is, is a really good one. Um, and this is what I often do after that. Cause the, the camera one is kind of like, okay, let me show you, right? Um, going to failure is going to teach you what it feels like. Um, making sure that your last rep is, is, or your last set is harder than your first one kind of gives you a good awareness of like, okay, 
if I'm easily doing my last set, then I'm probably not pushing hard enough, you know? Um, now, if you're doing a quad day, which I wouldn't recommend, of course, you don't want to burn out on the first set of quads exercise because guess what? You're going to have a bunch more quad exercises. But if you're doing a leg day and your main quad exercise is a squat, your last set should be fucking hard. <coughs> Excuse me. So that kind of helps you understand some of that, uh, uh, how it should flow. The last one is performing sets based off of your RAR, not your rep count, which is kind of what I alluded to in the first one. And this is something that I actually use with my clients. I will program for them. Um, and I use it with ones that um, are new to lifting and who are not new to lifting, but they are new to RAR or they just need to learn how to push hard. I have people who are brand new to lifting that I use this with. I have people that are seasoned lifters. They have been lifting for years but I know for a fact that the reason that they're plateaued is because they're not pushing it hard enough and they haven't been introduced to a system like the RIR or our PE system yet, or they haven't been coached on it yet, so they don't know how to properly use it. So what I'll do is I will program based off RIR, not rep counts. Um, so what I do at first is I will program a wide rep range. So let's say week one, I will program a wide rep range of like 10 to 20 reps and give them the proper RIR reach. Right, so what this would look like is maybe I say, hey, you're doing a dumbbell bench press and you're doing 10 to 20 reps. I want you to grab your estimated 10 to 12 rep max. So like you for sure can get 10 reps with it, maybe 12. And sometimes I'll just say, hey, grab your 10 rep max, like your estimated 10 rep max. I don't want you to like drop the dumbbells, but like you could, you could definitely get 10 reps with this with good form. Um, and then I want you to do somewhere in between 10 to 20 reps and you're going to leave one in the tank or two in the tank, Right. And then we see what they can get. Typically, they definitely get more than 10. And this has actually been shown in research too. Research shows people estimating their 10 rep max and getting upwards of 26 reps. It's insane. Um, one study on the bench press that I've referred to countless times, it's just the best one to um, show uh, or explain this topic or like really highlight this. Uh, the lowest count was 12, I believe. And then it was like the average was 16 and the highest was 26. So it just shows like people will go way more than they realize. But in the following week, I will actually prescribe a load with it and the RIR to meet. So what I do is like, let's say I said, hey, grab a 10 rep max. And they're like, okay, I'm gonna do 30s. Cool. Go anywhere between 10 to 20 reps and leave one rep in the tank or two reps in the tank. Let's say two. They get 15 reps. I'm like, damn, well done. So obviously you are undershooting your potential. You're stronger than you think you are. And you need to build your confidence because you just expressed it and showed it to yourself, right? Then I will tell them the next week, hey, we're gonna do that same dumbbell bench press but you're gonna do an AMRAP. So I want you to do as many reps as possible, minus two. So I'll literally write AMRAP and then in parentheses minus, sorry, minus one. I'll do AMRAP minus one. And that just means do as many as you can while still leaving one rep in the tank. So you're basically just doing as many as you can with an RIR of one, right? And I want you to go five pounds heavier than you did last week. So they grabbed 30, did 15 when they thought they were gonna do 10. And they left two in the tank. This week I say grab a 35 and do as many as you can while leaving one rep in the tank. So if we do the math correctly, they should still beat 10 for sure. A lot of times they get 15 again. I've had clients get 20. I've had clients literally, I say this too, and I look and they have 22 reps written in their, in their app. And I'm like, what happened here? And they're like, I just did, kept going. And I'm like, okay, so you need to learn how to go heavier, right? And this happens quite often. But essentially what this will teach you is how heavy you can actually go and how hard to push. Because instead of grabbing a weight and hitting the reps based on what you guess and, and what the program says, because if I put three times eight, 
the RIR2 and I don't teach them this process, they might grab those 30-pound dumbbells and do eight. Or they might grab 35, let's say, and do eight. But because I did this first, they sh- I show them that they can do 35 pounds for 15 fucking reps. <laughs> and now when I write three times eight the next week, they're like, well, I'm going to grab the 45s because I know I'm stronger than I realized. And it's a very, very eye-opening practice to do with clients. So, um, so yeah, uh, K Ramsey or Cramsey, your question, thoughts on taking sets to failure versus leaving one, two, or three reps in the tank. Those are my thoughts. That's 30 minutes of coaching for you guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I, I really wanted to go in on this because I think it's something that is misunderstood. I think a lot of people don't get coached on it. And I, I truly believe that a lot of people who are training and not getting results, it, it's often because they don't abide by this. And one of the most, I've taken clients and gone, hey, we're not going to, you're, you're training six days a week right now. We're going to train four days a week. And I'm going to show you how to train hard enough. And I swear to God, they start getting better results doing two less days. And then because they love the gym and they like being there five or six days a week, we can build volume off that in the future because I pulled back and now I have room to grow. But if they came to me doing six days a week and I just kept them at six days a week and I showed them how to push on top of that, they probably wouldn't be adequately recovering and we have nowhere to go. So really, really in-depth answer, obviously. But um, I just wanted to share that because I think it's really important to know, you know, how important you know, the, not just training to failure, but how important understanding where failure is for you so that you can train within the right distance of it. And then how do you actually test this and and practice it? Right. So, sorry, drink my rock star, which I usually do by muting the mic while Travis is asking a question, but today you're going to hear me drink. All right. Uh, let's see. Trying to find the best questions because I know I'm going on rants and don't have too much time. Uh, this is an easy one. Kayla Cost, what are your favorite parts about the holidays? Um, my favorite part about the holidays is pretty simple, honestly. I just love my daughter's reactions now. Like, it's just not, I don't know. Shannon was complaining to me last night because I'm just the most difficult to shop for because she's like, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, what do you need? Eh, nothing. Like, I just don't know. I don't need anything. I'm good. Like, um, we're actually looking at this. Uh, I want to sponsor a family instead of a Christmas. I'm like, I don't need anything, but I would love to sponsor a family who is in need and I can just give whatever I was going to get to them. Like they need it more than me. So we're going to sponsor family. Like that's a really cool thing to do. Um, and, 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 you know, that is something honestly, like I didn't think about, but that's something I love about the holidays. It like, it forces you to think about things that you should be thinking about on a regular basis. And you know what? We're humans. So it is what it is. We're busy. We have so many things to do. I'm being pulled in a million directions all the time. But when it's Thanksgiving, when it's Christmas, when it's Easter, when it's these holidays, you know, you think about it more. And then the themes around everywhere, right? You see posters and signs and, and the pastor at church and all these people, like the media, the marketing, the talking, the the preaching, everything is around giving and positivity and, and all this stuff, right, around the holidays. So I think this isn't what, what my answer was going to be, but now that I'm reflecting on it, I think it's really cool because it, it kind of forces you to do some of the things that you know you want to do anyway, and you maybe just put off. You know, I've thought about sponsoring a family for a while. We do contribute a lot to different types of things, whether it's giving clothes to orphanages or people in need, or it's just donating to the uh, the children's children's hunger fund, which we've done for years, like um, helping supply things for the orphanage that Andrea owns. Like we always are looking to do stuff, um, but a lot of times it goes on autopilot, right? You sign up for something once, and then it's just a monthly thing that just keeps happening or whatever. 
but like the holidays kind of force you to reach out to people and tell them you love them and appreciate them. It forces you to think about stuff like this. Like, what do I need? And I sat there and reflected on it. I'm like, I don't fucking need anything, but I know other people do. So I'm going to go out of my way to do something because this is a time of giving, right? And unfortunately, it's not always a time of giving. I try really hard to constantly give, give, give. But this is a time of year where it kind of, for, like, it puts us, I don't want to say forced because I'm not being forced to do so, but it kind of nudges you in a, in a positive way to do more than you normally would, you know, because of the time of year. So I love that. Um, I love giving gifts too. Like, I could care less what I get. I'm like, every time we're around the, the Christmas tree in the morning, because we do Christmas morning, it's just me and my girls. We, we avoid, like, driving around to families and stuff. We try to do those on separate days or Christmas Eve and stuff like that. So Christmas morning is just us. Um, and I just love watching. I'm like, Hey, open another one, open another one. <laughs> and I just want to see them open, um, the gifts I got them. And I'm just, I just love it. Um, one of the hardest parts is that I start getting things and I just want to give them to them early. Like I can't, it's like, it kills me to hold on to it. Um, but I, I love that the aspect of giving in general, honestly, I like it more than I, I'm not the best gift receiver. Like I get awkward and like, <laughs> I don't know, but I love watching people open gifts that I give them. Um, but I also just like, I, I love how much my daughter loves Christmas. Um, you know, we have Elf on the Shelf going on right now. This is day two. And she like this morning we hit her upstairs. So she was just going crazy. Where is she hiding? She is so tricky. And she's just going everywhere looking. And she gets so excited about it all. So excited about the lights. So excited about the snow. Um, I started crying last night. Uh, Literally, like, my eyes, my eyes just started, like, watering up because we were watching Jack Frost, and at the end, the dad's got to go away, and basically, like, it's like dust in the wind. It's like snow just floats away. And she's, I mean, we, we just, she's like, what is it? What's happening? And we're like, oh, he's going to heaven, you know? We're like, he's done. And that's, you know, that's life. And my daughter starts crying. She's like, I don't want that for him. I want him to have his daddy. And she's, like, crying. And I was just like, Oh my God, you're melting my heart right now. You're like, you are so fucking sweet. And I couldn't hold back. <laughs> just like my eyes started watering. I just wanted to be like, come, please stop hugging your mom and come over here so I can hug you. Cause I was just watching from the other side of the couch. I'm like, oh, but, um, my, my daughter is just a very, she just, her emotions are so like, overwhelming in, in, in every way. When she's angry, she's angry. When she's sassy, she's sassy. When she's happy, she's happy. When she wants to dance, she is fucking dancing. We were in Menchie's the other day and she was eating, she'd take a bite of Menchie's and she would get up and just start fucking dancing because there was like this Justin Timberlake song and she would take a bite and then get up and dance and she's like, I don't care who's around. I love it. It's so cool. Um, I told Shan last night, like I, like I wish I could do that because there's nothing that feels better than dancing and or singing without a single care in the world. But as an adult, you rarely ever do that unless you're in your car and it feels good. But, um, but no, like that's probably my favorite part. Honestly, it's just the, uh, the giving stuff and the, the, the thing that is like, it just constantly puts the intention of giving in your mind. And then just like my daughter just being so hyped up and excited about the holidays and everything about Christmas. I love just like you, the snow and then the lights and just everything, the decorations, the smells, um, favorite time of the year without a doubt. All right, uh, G. Benny, can I just concentrate on accessory and isolation work instead of main compounds? Um, absolutely, you can do, if that's what your goals align with, then you can literally absolutely do that. Like, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people, like, 
what's the word? Um, they like hype up or, or just glorify or whatever. Um, they put it on a pedestal, right? Compound lifts. And although I think compound lifts are important, I think at a certain point, once you get proficient at them and you get strong with them, if they don't align with your goals, you don't need to do those specific lifts, especially if your goals are body composition related. Now, if you are a strength athlete, I think it's a very important. Um, even if you're not a, um, and this is what's hard because I can't even say that for sure because everything's about specificity. That's the number one rule. If you ever read, it's a really good book, um, Juggernaut. Uh, by Chad Wesley Smith, and I think he has a co-author in it, but it's the scientific principles of strength training. And principle number one is specificity. In fact, Mike Isratel's book, uh, Scientific Principles of Hypertrophy Training, it's the same thing. Uh, scientific principle number one is specificity. So if we look at the compound lifts, bench, squat, deadlift, we could throw an overhead press in there, let's say, um, with the barbell. Those are all the compound lifts but they're specific to powerlifting. So if you have a goal of being a powerlifter, if you have a goal of competing in powerlifting and or you have a goal of just for yourself, maybe you don't want to step on a platform and, and compete, but you want to build your power lifts, then yes, you need to do those compounds. If you want to get strong, but you don't care about what it's with, let's say you won't want to get strong for a sport, you want to get strong in every movement pattern, which would be push, pull, hip hinge, and then squat, well, I think we're better off finding the lowest injury risk, um, the lowest injury risk and most comfortable, essentially, the most easy to master skill-wise squat, hip hinge, push, pull variation for you, really. Because if you just want to get stronger in the squat pattern and you don't care about a barbell because you're never going to power lift, well, it might be a hack squat. It might be a belt squat. It might be a front squat. It might be a safety bar squat. It might be, I mean, there's so many different squats, right? Um, you are going to improve that. And then on top of that, there's going to be times where maybe you're, you're on a heavy deadlift cycle. So you're actually not going to put a bar on your back or do any type of a bilateral squat. You're going to do Bulgarian split squats for your strength compound for your squat pattern, because you're going to be speed depth deadlifting once a week and heavy deadlifting once a week. And maybe you're doing it with a fucking trap bar because you're not tied to the barbell, right? So I think that there's even room for that. And then with athletes who need to improve strength and performance, I actually think it's even more important because it's going to lower injury risk. So not saying that you're less likely, I think you are less likely to get injured with a trap bar than a straight bar, almost nine times out of 10. Um, barbell, I can't always say that because, you know, you could, you know, hurt yourself with a safety bar or whatever, you know, it's called a safety bar. Um, no, it's most likely you're, you're going to, injury risk goes up with a barbell on your back. But my point with it is if you're an athlete, you need force production and generation through the floor right? So it's output. So does that mean a bar needs to be on your back? Not necessarily. It means you need to do some kind of squat pattern or jump or, uh, I mean, even some deadlift variations are producing force to the floor. You need to increase strength in that pattern. So again, it's not so much about the barbell back squat. It's about movement patterns. Um, and then with body composition, we're looking at, you know, muscle groups. So even with that, you definitely can just focus on accessory and isolation exercises. I would consider switching out compounds for a quote unquote, what I would call quote unquote metric based lift still. So the bench squat deadlift is a typical compound barbell power lifts that people use as metric based lifts. And by metric based lifts, I basically mean a lift that you are progressing week after week and you're tracking your metrics with. So you're seeing how much volume you're doing, how much weight you're lifting, so on and so forth. And you're trying to progress that over time. It's a metric based exercise. 
But I think that if your goal is hypertrophy, it might change a bit. So maybe you're not doing a barbell bench press, but rather you're doing a dumbbell floor press, a dumbbell incline press, whatever it may be, right? A machine chest press. But part of the way to guarantee you are building muscle over time and improving your physique is going to be progressive overload nonetheless. So even if that means you are adding a rep with the same load week after week, and then you come back, so you go eight reps with with 100 pounds, then nine reps with 100 pounds, then 10 reps, and then maybe once you get all the way to 12 reps, you come back to eight reps, but you do 105 pounds, you know, like simple things like that, you're still going to need those main lifts to keep around and slowly progress over time. Um, Doesn't need to be a bench squat deadlift with a barbell. It can be anything that's in those movement patterns, but you should be doing that. So can you just concentrate on isolation and accessory? If your goal is primarily hypertrophy, the answer is yes. However, I still think you should, uh, and by hypertrophy, I mean really anything that is body composition focused. So even if your goal is fat loss, maybe it is fat loss, but when you lose the fat, you want to have muscle tissue, right? You want to look the part, then you should still, you can mainly focus on isolation accessory exercises, but you should still have um, a main lift that you're using. um, That's probably not the typical compound lift, but it is a main lift for you to track progress with over time for push, pull, hip hinge, and squat, right? Um, and that you do that, and I think you're going to be golden. Um, strength focus, you, that's even more important. Power lifters, you just need those compound lifts. Um, okay, uh, there's a lot of training questions today. I like it. Uh, John Nitty or John Itty Rel, John Nitty, Jonet Tyrell? I don't know. Let's go with that. Jonet Tyrell photo. These are from Instagram, as you can tell. Is it important to switch up every uh, programming every six weeks or can we stick with it longer? Um, I think six weeks is a random number, but sorry. It, it, it's important to switch up your program every now and then, um, but you can definitely stick with it longer. Six weeks is a very random number, so I don't know where you're getting that from. Um, I would say the most generic is four because it's like a monthly block, but everybody's different. So I think the amount of time you should spend on a program, and I would dis I would disassociate program and block because I think that when I think of a program, I think a program, I think of multiple blocks. So if I have a focus, right? So when I was getting ready for my photo shoot, uh, I I was on a um, 12 week program. My diet was about eight to nine weeks, but I was on a 12 week program. Like for 12 weeks, this is my focus. This is the periodization scheme. This is, these are the main exercises I'm going to be using. And then every three to four weeks, I'm changing things out. So the blocks might've been three or four weeks. I believe there were three weeks on that one, but my, my program is 12 weeks. So 12, like the program could be 12, 16, 20, 24. It could be a year. Like your program is your focus. In my opinion, um, typically I think your program should be 12 to 16 weeks, three to four months. And there should be multiple blocks or mesocycles within that. Most people think of a a program as in like, I'm following these exact things for X amount of time. And I understand that. But the reality is, is that, you know, you ask, can we stick with longer? Absolutely. And the reality is you should stick with something mostly until you stop progressing with it. The problem is, is most people create a program and they stop progressing with 50% of it. So they change half of what they're doing too often. Right. So for example, if I'm, if I'm on a 16 week program, four months long, and I have four week blocks in there, I might do certain exercises for eight weeks at a time. I might do the same bench press variation or whatever for the entire 16 weeks, but every three or four weeks, I'm changing out 
other things. Maybe it's reps, maybe it's tempos, cadences, maybe it's variations of accessory exercises or isolation work, volume totals, because I can see my progress. I know I need to add or remove volume as the blocks go on. But your program should be a focus in six weeks, or in my case, when I say three or four week programs or blocks, that's just not enough time to create a lot of results. So when we consider how long it takes to see some serious adaptations occur and to see real results come to fruition from hard training consistently done, it's just not going to happen in three, four, not even six weeks. Realistically, you can get results in six weeks, don't get me wrong, but I believe you should give yourself more time to really get results. So I think that your programming um, should be focused, your program should be focused on your overall goal and you should program Uh, with specific intentions and themes across your days in the gym and weeks in the gym, focus on that specific goal, which is going to be accomplished in 12 to 24 weeks, somewhere in that range, right? Three to six months. And then every, in my opinion, the best timeline is always three to four weeks. That's just what I've noticed because I think that most people can make a good amount of progress in three to four weeks with certain exercises. And then some exercises will just need way more. So we can go, you know, the compound lifts change every six weeks but the accessory and isolation exercises change every three weeks. Or we can say the compound lifts change every eight weeks and this accessory and isolation change every four weeks. I think that the, the longer, and you could even do four-week compounds, two-week accessory and isolations. The longer you've been training, the more advanced you are, the shorter those periods can be because the skill behind the movement is, isn't uh, the limiting factor. Because if I give you a new uh, exercise this week, you're going to conquer that exercise. And you're going to get good at that exercise, be able to progress it very quickly. Whereas somebody who's brand new has never done that exercise. It might take them a few weeks at least in order to get skilled enough at that movement pattern in order to finally start progressing it with load, right? So you might need longer. So four weeks and eight weeks for compounds, four weeks for isolation accessory might be more towards beginner, four weeks for compound, two weeks for uh, accessory and isolation might be for uh, advanced. But I typically, for me personally, it's like six and uh, three weeks. I change my block accessory and isolation every three weeks. And then for Uh, compound lift variations every six weeks. And again, because I'm not focused on, uh, at the moment, at least powerlifting, where I need to get better at the barbell bench press, I'm changing from a neutral grip to a floor press to a barbell to an incline. Like I'm changing those things up every four weeks, every six weeks, because I can, because I don't need to get super, super strong in one of those lifts. I'm just doing it as a secondary goal to my hypertrophy goal. Um, But the, the, the realistic answer is you can do the same thing until you stop progressing, which for some people might be a few weeks. For some people, it could be fucking three, four months before you need to change it. Um, however, I truly believe that the best cadence is typically three to four week blocks and compound lifts changing every six to eight weeks and then accessory changing every block three to four week period because most people, that's where they fall into the spectrum of uh, progression and boredom. And I say boredom because a lot of people just get bored. You know, that's even me. Like after three or four weeks of the same exercise, I just want something to stimulate my mind a little bit more. I want a new exercise. So I think that uh, it's important to do that for that reason. You know, every three to four weeks you change stuff up simply to just change the mental stimulus. Okay, we're going to do one more question. Um, a drink of Rockstar to finish this out right. From uh, Curve. Carissa Farewell. It's like, goodbye, Carissa. Carissa Farewell asks, is it possible to push your true maintenance window higher? And if so, how? It's a really good question. Um, I think the the answer is, is obviously, and it depends, because 
I think in some case, in some regards, the answer could be yes. And in many regards, the answer could be no. So I'd rather focus on how would it be possible, right? So because it ultimately depends on like, how do you determine your true maintenance? Because my true maintenance is where it's at. I I can't really change it because if I change my true maintenance, I'm changing where I'm at. And where I'm at is my activity level, my sleep, my performance, all those things. So in a way, if you change where you're at, you can change your true maintenance, but it's because it's no longer your true maintenance. And that's why I think like maintenance is not a, and this is where people get really confused. I think with a lot of stuff is maintenance is not a set in stone number. It's not a dead set. Put the pin in the map. This is where your maintenance is at. It's a moving target. It's a range. So, and this is also why like when we're leading clients to their fat loss result and we do have to implement things that might make them feel like there's more, uh, I don't even want to say it's just structure, right? Cause it's not strict. It's not rigid, but it's routine. It's regimen, it's structure. And that's what they need. They need structure. They need regimen. They need to know when they can be more flexible, when they should tighten it up. Um, because the reality is if you're just too flexible all the time, you're not gonna get results. It's plain simple. People don't like to say it, but it's fucking true. However, when people are accomplishing fat loss and pursuing fat loss, there needs to be more structure and more accountability to stick to that structure so that you know you're on the right path and you're consistently following what's going to cause the change. But because we know that maintenance is a moving target, it's not a set in stone spot, it makes it really easy to transition people into maintenance because we can say like, hey, like, you know, the diet itself to get you the fat loss result is definitely more difficult because we need more structure. We need to be more on point. There needs to be more consistency. However, maintenance is a moving target. So once we get done with the diet and we start moving to maintenance, we can be more intuitive. We can be more flexible. We can have days where a little bit over. And if you feel like eating a little bit less, you can eat a little bit less because maintenance is going to be based on how many steps you take, how well you slept, your stress levels, the training session, not, yeah, I'm doing the same upper lower split, but did I push it harder on the leg day versus the upper body day? Probably. Did I go harder on my cardio this week than the last week? Did I step more this week than last week? Did I sleep more than last week? What did I do this week that is different than last week? And how many weeks into this program am I in? Because the adaptations that happen during a training program, especially with a progressive training program in week three are different than week one. And one of the worst things people do is they deload and they take a diet or they, they lower their calories because they're not doing as much. It's like, no, the deload is when we're seeing that super compensation, your body's repairing and rebuilding from what you just did for the last three to four weeks. So we need those calories. Um, but because of that, it makes it easier because it's like, hey, you don't got to be perfect. Like once we accomplish the fat loss goal, I mean, not even in the fat loss, you don't want to be perfect because if you're striving for perfection, you're striving for an inaccurate perfection number anyway, right? Because if you're like, I got to hit 200 grams of carbs on the dot, nobody can determine exactly what those are. We don't have a uh, calorie meter or whatever it is where they actually like test how many calories are in something. We don't have one of those on hand. So like, you don't know if that 100 grams of blueberries is truly 14 grams of carbs or if it's 15 or if it's 13 or if it's 20. You're just close, right? And so there's no perfection, but when we get to maintenance, there's even less. Um, And so it's hard to say, to answer this question because if that's the case, there's no true maintenance number. You said true maintenance window, which I appreciate because that kind of opens the door to the idea that there is a range. So can we push that range higher? Well, the answer to that is potentially, but not at some kind of sacrifice of extra input. So the only way to make your 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 uh, maintenance window higher is essentially to add in some kind of input. So this might mean you're doing more exercise. 
this might mean you're doing more steps. You, this might mean you're doing, and for some people, they have a very responsive metabolism. And this is where like that G flux idea, right? Eat more, burn more. Um, it might be true. You probably do eat more and burn more for some people. However, the net difference is still the same. So you might eat more and then burn more, but you don't get leaner because you don't burn more than you ate more. Meaning if I ate 200 more calories, I might burn an extra 200 calories too, but I'm not going to burn 400 calories because I ate 200, right? It's, it just doesn't work like that. So we might be able to push our maintenance window up higher through this G flux idea if you are one of those people that does respond that way to in calorie increases, usually is done via carbohydrates. But if we increase calories and therefore our body burns more naturally, then yes, we might be able to push that maintenance higher. But it's not at it's at the expense of spending more time doing activity. So maybe you're doing extra cardio, you're adding an extra training session, maybe you're doing some more aerobic work. There's something else happening. So it doesn't come for free. You got to invest time. In order to do that, um, you could build more muscle. Muscle is more uh, demanding of energy, so it, it requires more energy in order to sustain on your body. However, it's not that demanding. So people used to say, like, you know, you you add more muscle, you're going to increase your metabolism ton. Not the case. You do increase your metabolism because your cal- your body needs more calories in order to just uh, maintain muscle tissue on its body than fat tissue or any other tissue. However, it's not that much, but in this question scenario, we have to point out the fact that if you add a significant amount of muscle over time, your maintenance caloric window will increase for sure. Um, the uh, obviously drugs, you know, if somebody takes some kind of steroid, uh, you're probably going to see an increase uh, as well. Uh, potentially hormone replacement. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not super well versed on that. But um, I would imagine that to be the case because there's a lot of hormones in our bodies that actually um, suppress our metabolism. So if somebody has PCOS or hypothyroidism or chronically elevated cortisol levels or low testosterone, um, there is a suppression of the thyroid and therefore a suppression of the metabolism, meaning your metabolism slows down a little bit. Um, with some of these hormonal dysfunctions. So I can imagine if you had low thyroid and then you got hormone replacement therapy or you had low testosterone, you got hormone replacement therapy to supplement and get the testosterone or the thyroid or whatever fixed and up. I could see that increasing your maintenance window. But again, it wouldn't really increase your maintenance window from what it should be. It would just increase it from what it is. Because if you have thyroid dysfunction, it means you're below what your true maintenance window should be, right? If you have low testosterone, you're below what your true maintenance caloric intake, true true maintenance muscle tissue, all that shit. You're below what it should be. And therefore, if you supplement with HRT, hormone replacement therapy, you're bringing yourself back up to where you're supposed to be. So I guess that's not really something that moves your window up. Um, But essentially, yeah, like I think you can... push your true maintenance up, but I don't think it comes at, uh, without the expense of adding time in the gym or doing cardio or adding muscle tissue, which is not going to happen quick. So even in the, the situation where you add more muscle tissue and that leads to a, a, a higher metabolic window or maintenance window, I mean, that's going to come after years. You probably won't even notice it because it would be going at such a slow pace. So, um, yes and no. Yes, but it's not easy is, is the, is the right answer. So, All right, guys, that was the last question for today. So a couple quick things before we sign out. First and foremost, thank you so much for listening to this uh, solo episode and riding with me here. I hope you got some value from it. Um, If you did, leave us a a rating and review, please, on Spotify and or iTunes or wherever you're listening to this and send it to a friend. Send this to somebody who could use it. Share it on your Instagram. Do something that we can spread this message and help more people completely free. Another thing is just a reminder, go over to tailoredlifeapparel.co. Also follow at tailoredlifeapparel on Instagram. 
Uh, just to support the movement, please. We are trying to build something very impactful that can give back to a lot of people um, once we get this up and running and we get more and more people wearing um, our stuff. And it is Monday, so if we did not sell out yesterday, go check out the site and see if there's anything left. And if there is, cop it and rep us. And if there's not, sign up for notifications so you can get early access to the next drop. Um, last but not least... We do coaching. That's what we primarily do at Taylor Coaching Method, my primary company. Uh, and I want to shout them out because my coaches have absolutely been killing it. We've been seeing a, a, an insane influx of transformations lately. And I love it because it's the holidays. So people are still grinding through the holidays. So if you need support, you need accountability, you need the extra push to finish the year strong, get through the holidays without gaining weight, but rather actually losing weight. And yes, it is possible to lose body fat, build muscle, get better results, and still fucking enjoy the holiday goodies. I promise we do it with a lot of people. It is not that complicated. So if you want that help head over to taylorcoachingmethod.com and click the first button you see it says coaching it is bright yellow click that shit apply to coach with us and we would love to get on a free call with you all right guys that's all i got for you and we will catch you guys next time